Hi there, this is Paulina Cameron, CEO of The Forum, where women entrepreneurs thrive, and your host for this podcast. Welcome to season three of The Go-To for entrepreneurs in the know. The Go-To is brought to you by The Forum in collaboration with the Scotiabank Women Initiative and generously supported by the Women's Enterprise Organizations of Canada. I'd like to acknowledge that production of this podcast is taking place on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Coast Salish peoples, specifically the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. On our last season, we dove into resilience, and this season is all about the builders, the women entrepreneurs who are building businesses with big visions, building teams with great impact, building stronger communities, and growing our economy. They are the women behind the products and services that we admire. Their stories will take us on a journey and give us a peek into what's happening behind the scenes with their businesses at this critical stage of their growth, and will bring forward great nuggets of applicable wisdom and a solid dose of inspiration. Let's dive in. Okay, and just before we dive in, listen up. At the end of the season, we will be giving away a pair of Apple AirPods Pro, courtesy of our friends over at TELUS, so that you can have a delightful podcast experience on the go. All you have to do is enter to share your feedback. What did you love? What would you love to see going forward? Who would you like to hear from? Submit your thoughts at theforum.ca slash feedback and we will draw one lucky winner at the end of the season. Yafa Sakaja is the CEO of Beneplan, Canada's provider of refundable health insurance plans. The business model is a cooperative where the clients own the dividends that are paid as a result of claims being less than premiums. Yaffa has over 25,000 hours in the benefit space and has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, CBC, Financial Post, and all major benefits publications. And she is also the mom of an energetic little boy. Yaffa, I am so excited that you are joining us today. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I understand that you actually didn't necessarily want to be an entrepreneur, (laughs) and yet here you are. How did that happen? You're right. So my both my parents are small business owners. My father is the third generation entrepreneur in his family. And growing up, I just saw how much they struggled and how much work it took. And then I went to university for business. I went to Queens and there they had all these courses on entrepreneurship and how, and I thought that's never going to be me. But here I am. It's sort of a, it's an interesting story because I had worked in consulting right after university. And then you know, really decided that I actually did want to start my own business just for so many reasons. I was 22. I also was so naive. I had no idea what I was doing or how difficult it was going to be. Um, also, the 2008 recession was happening at that time. And it was just, you know, the iPhone had just come out. It just seemed like the tectonic plates of business was changing. So I ended up starting my own wellness company. And then I feel like that was my first real taste of how incredibly hard it is to scale a business. And then at the same time, I was started to see, um, you know, in the tech community, there were just a lot of really interesting success stories, especially in Canada. Um, 
So all of this was happening and, and I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to wind this business down. I was really embarrassed of my, mm-hmm. of my decision because I felt like I was a failure, even though I, you know, I ran it for five years, I was able to run payroll and collect revenues. I just was so burned out. And I was like, I hate this. I can't do this anymore. I started to actually like be physically repulsed by work because it just felt like a dead mm-hmm. end. I was like, why am I doing this? Like, so at the same time, my father was going to sell his business and his business is the business that I'm running right now called Beneplan. And at the time, I remember growing up and watching him work so hard. And I was like, Oh, the last thing I want to do is be in financial services, especially in insurance. Cause like insurance is a super ugly, um, uncomfortable business. It's not popular. And I feel like even today, like at parties, if you introduce yourself as somebody who's insurance, like people are like, okay, I'm just going to go walk over there. <laughs> it is not, it is not the sexy business that people are lining up to hear about. <laughs> no, it's like the opposite of what people want to get into. In fact, but the crazy thing is that I just started to listen because I went to business school and I thought, oh, it's interesting that you're going to sell the company. Can I just shadow you and observe? Because it'd be really cool to see what it's like, like see an M&A transaction take place. And then as I took a look at it, I realized that it was the opposite of the business that I had started myself. It was B2B instead of B2C. It had recurring revenue. It um, was an essential business. So it's kind of linked to also payroll, like benefits tend to go up when payroll goes up. So it's linked to like a really strong economic indicator in Canada. So as long as payroll's going up, you're like on the right side of history there. And then even now, like, thank God for the business because the pandemic came out. I'm in Ontario here and uh, benefits was listed as one of the essential businesses that must continue to operate. Um, So long story short, I started drinking the Kool-Aid early on, especially because the business that he started was it's a mutual cooperative model in insurance, meaning that our customers actually own the cooperative and they get all of the dividends. So all the insurance profit basically. And then my business that we run as a management company, we earn 5% of premiums to manage everything. But he really basically was able to like hack the insurance model whereby typically you kind of think, okay, I'm going to pay premiums to an insurance company. And if there's a claim, there's a claim. And if there's not, I guess that's insurance. You just have to have insurance. But he figured out a way to actually shake the tree and get the insurance companies to refund their profits through a technicality. And then I still feel like I wasn't born to do this. I'm like, I feel so uncomfortable. Like I've struggled with imposter syndrome all the time, but that's effectively how I got into it. I just started really appreciating how it's it's so difficult to build a business that has recurring revenue. And, but once you do, you have that gift of like not having to feel crushing anxiety every time, like you have a ripple in the economy. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's so much I want to dig into there. Let me begin First, with asking you about this model, because I understand that you it's you are the only provider in Canada that has that kind of a model. And to me, this cooperative model, uh, I mean, I've heard about it a lot, especially in spaces more around social enterprise or B Corp world, not as mainstream, certainly would have never associated it with insurance. <laughs> Usually you kind of have the opposite perception of how profit works in those businesses. It feels like it was very ahead of the times. 
Do you find that right now it matters to folks that you bring on board? Like, is that a really strong selling feature? Do you feel more people come to you because of it? Has it become something that you lead with? Or is it something that kind of follows on after? I'm curious about that. Because what I see is a lot of entrepreneurs are embedding some sort of impact or social benefit into their businesses. B2C, B2B, doesn't really matter, but I'm seeing kind of across the board uh, integration of impact into business and a cooperative model is one way of doing that. And so I'm curious whether you see that as like the leading piece of growing the business or more of a subtlety and uh, kind of an additional plus. The cooperative model is definitely the number one thing that's attracting us. And we're growing quickly uh, but I will say it's it's really because insurance is so grossly profitable under normal circumstances that there's room in there. And I will say it's actually not even a progressive thought. It's a super archaic thought. Every insurance company in the world started off as like, if you think about um, Europe in the 1500s and like a barn burning down, like people at it, at church on Sundays would just come together, put up the money, mm-hmm. all the men in the community mm-hmm. would like rebuild the barn. And I'll tell you, like there are still communities in Ontario, like, uh, you know, in Elmira where you have Mennonites that that's what they do. Like they actually opt out of OHIP, which is our government health insurance plan. The original, the original crowdfunding barter ish model. <laughs> okay. The other piece I want to dive into is I also know that when you were looking at getting into this business, one of the considerations that you had after your B2C business and the burnout you experienced there was in thinking forward around thinking about becoming a mother and having a family and basically reverse engineering what you wanted that to look like for your life and having experienced what B2C and that specific business was like, you didn't really want to do that again and add a child and hope it would somehow magically um, be a lot simpler. Can you tell me about how you thought about that reverse engineering and why it works in the business that you're in right now. Yeah. So in terms of reverse engineering, I was just in a place where I was literally depressed and physically exhausted by burning myself out with a business that was face-to-face, required food inventory. It was like a health retreat company. So we needed food. It was tourism. Um, It just, it was like all of the things that make it difficult as a working mom. So you know, you have to show up physically. That means you have to find childcare. Like a lot of that, a lot of the stuff is happening on evenings and weekends. And so I just thought, okay, how is it? Like, what's the actual best way that I can build my life? And I actually learned this method of thinking from Alyssa Furtado, who's the founder and CEO of ratehub.ca, because I noticed that um, she was really vocal about just like picturing and visualizing what it is that you want and then just working towards that. So I actually, this like light bulb moment came up because I'm like, oh my God, financial services sales is dominated by one avatar, except it's that avatar is not a working mom. And I actually just want to change the conversation. I know I might sound like the Tupperware lady to be like, all women should get into financial services sales, but it's really true. It's actually an ideal career for a working parent. I love it. And it's, I, I love that you're underscoring, you know, the strengths that women can also bring to that and that it hasn't been the avatar of who's been there. To me, what I also hear when you say that is, uh, if as a business owner myself, I would love to work with a woman in the financial services industry. So I think also as we're seeing more women grow and build businesses, more women acquire wealth, more women um, transition into owning businesses where folks are retiring out of them, the market continues to grow on that side of it. 
So let's talk about this. What does it take to succeed in this kind of business and in a B2B business? You know, one of the things we had talked about is sales looks really different and the longevity of a sales cycle looks really different. What do you think um, you need to have, both from a mindset perspective, setting aside the skill set perspective, but kind of from a mindset, resilience, and, you know, aptitude for uh, developing that no muscle? What do you need to have in place to succeed? Yeah, so three things. One, patience. Um, two, the ability to get rejected every day and still try. And then three, the energy of no pressure. So in, mm. I'll start with the third one. In B2B, the less pressure you put on your customer to buy, the more likely they will buy. The great irony. It's like it's like with a child, right? No, don't put your shoes on. Do not get dressed. Do not brush your teeth. I find when I was in a B2C world, I would think, oh my God, like I really want to hit the sales target. Okay, I'm going to run a discount, run a promotion, and like I would sell mm-hmm. right away and it'd be great. Like buy this before this date, 15% off, money would come through the door. It is the opposite in B2B. In B2B, you're dealing with building trust with a business owner. I find, or any business leader, could be a finance leader. Um, and I find, especially because when a business purchases, there's so much more that goes into that purchase. Like, They might have an ISO audit. They might need to do penetration testing to get an ethical hacker to hack their business and see if they're compliant. They might need to do a criminal background check. And so it's okay to have patience there and just to say, you know what this is? This is a marriage. They are marrying you if you're in B2B sales. And so once they get married to you, that's it. Like you're, as long as you don't, you know, screw up and you're doing your best, which I think a lot of your listeners will. You could have that contract for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. Like there's really no need to move the contract if you're doing your job. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the first one is just patience. Like I'm telling you, there are some people, like there are some deals that we're getting now. It's something that has been 10 years in the works and that might scare Mm -hmm. a lot of people, but the same thing that makes it scary makes it super lucrative. Like the harder it is to get a customer well, they're going to be hard on the way in. They'll be hard on the way out too. It's all—it's like easy mm-hmm. come, easy go tech concept. The second one was uh, rejection. So I think, you know, similar to like entrepreneurship, um, I once, there was this blog called Rejection Therapy that I used to read over a decade ago. And they had this 30 day rejection challenge and I tried it and it was amazing. The goal was flip the idea of rejection on its head. Because of course I used to get the, you know, the scaries in my stomach when I had to cold call or talk to somebody that I was nervous about or had a bigger title or more authority. And I still sometimes get that, to be honest. So what I did was every day, your goal is to try to get somebody to tell you no. And then by the end of the 30 days, you actually realize it's really hard to get people to to reject you. When you think about B2B relationships, is there anything tactical that you have found very helpful in building or sustaining relationships? Yeah, tons and tons of tactical advice. Um, one tactic that I found a different B2B salesperson use on me recently that I loved was giving me my time back. So he had booked an hour to demo me a new piece of software, but we were done in 22 minutes. And then he said, why don't I give you the rest of your hour back? And I love that because I thought, wow, now I've got an extra 38 minutes to think, to focus, to go for a walk, to refill my water, Mm -hmm. to answer emails. Um, Another one that I learned from one of our customers was bottom line everything. So if you're sending an email and, you know, 
One thing I learned a long time ago is actually up to 30% of entrepreneurs have dyslexia themselves. And so reading and writing is like not really their thing. They're more about talking and building relationships. So if you're going to have to send an email, you've got to bottom line things in the first sentence and also consolidate everything into that one email. They might not read it, but they're going to pass it off to their um, maybe HR manager or CFO or COO and say, can you vet this? And if it's all there in one, you've got the package. Um, so that's why I say you have to choose your mediums carefully. I find some people give up after they say, well, I called them, I left a voicemail, they never called me back. Try different mm -hmm. mediums, text them, drop in on their office unannounced, like, hey, I was in the neighborhood. You know, mail them a copy of a book that's your favorite and have a handwritten script in there. Okay, two things I'm hearing. The art of the delight, especially the unexpected delight. You know what I had someone once do to me? And this was my this is my version of the gift of time, which I also would so appreciate and love. Anytime anyone wants to give me time, I am all here for it. Someone scheduled a, a Zoom meeting with me, and it was an informational interview. They're a young student and just wanted to chat and connect. They're looking to start a business. And they sent me a Starbucks gift card two hours before our meeting, a $5 Starbucks gift card landed in my inbox two hours before our meeting. And it said, if we could be IRL right now, I'd be buying you coffee. Hope there's a Starbucks nearby. Go grab yourself a coffee. And I just sat there staring at it for a solid five minutes, like, Brilliant, brilliant. Yes, delightful, delightful. So I have now used that many times and will continue to. Best kept no longer a secret. And secondly, what I heard you talk about was brevity and clarity. And, you know, I think it's so easy to get, and you were talking about this too, with regards to, you know, pushing and kind of that sales piece, but it's so easy to love our voice and our story and think we're so, be so precious about our words Okay, I want to ask you, in your business, what do you feel has been a really pivotal moment that either changed the trajectory or the course of the business or really catapulted it? So I would say we have two really pivotal moments, actually three. So the first one was when I finally learned how to delegate. So when I started working with my father, we had six employees. Um, now we have 25 employees. And so in the beginning, you know, when you're running a small business, you're always kind of strapped for cash and you're always worried, like, if I hire this person and it doesn't work out, you know, mm -hmm. that's a lot of money wasted. So you try to be really careful and frugal about the people you onboard. But then, I don't know, there was a shift one day where I just realized, like, I'm getting hundreds of emails a day. I'm working till 7 p.m. This is not <laughs> the life that I'm actualizing for myself. So I started to just like ruthlessly delegate because I just physically did not have more time. That was a huge turning point because I find that the people on my team wanted more experience and they want to be like, I would sometimes baptize them by fire. I would just literally like shove them into a situation and be like, Hey, you deal with this. And previous me thought, Oh, well, I need to wait till they're ready or wait till they give me permission to put them in those situations. But a few times I just like pushed them in there and they actually thrived and they, they were swimming as opposed to sinking. Of course, it doesn't happen all the time, but that really helped me get my time back and my life back. Um, the second one was when I gave birth. So when I had my beautiful darling son uh, two and a half years ago, I finally realized like, oh my God, you cannot just gift the best years of your life away from a time perspective to a business. Like there is a wall, even if you don't have kids. Like, So I used to work 10, 12 hours a day just because I thought I'm building a business. This is great. Um, but then I didn't take a mat leave so to speak. Well, I'm an, I'm an owner and a family owner, so I'm not eligible for EI. I didn't, I'm not eligible for Matt 
money from the government. So I just kind of went dark in emails for four weeks, went back officially after I would say three or four months, um, hired a full-time nanny. But then that's when I realized like, okay, if I'm pumping and trying to breastfeed and trying to formula feed and wash and all this stuff, like I really only like at the six, eight week mark of my baby's life really only had like one or two hours a day where I could distill a to-do list of 150 things Mm -hmm. into like, what is the one thing I can do in an hour that's going to turn up the heat on my business? So if I can only do one thing for revenue, what is that thing? And now I still do that. Even though my child is in daycare full time and he's two and a half, he's more independent. I still do that. So I'm still ruthlessly trying to like get things like things on my to-do list that are not sparking joy. (laughs) I just try to either delegate or cut. And I just spend the one, you know, I, I protect my time and energy. Um, and then the third thing that really was a turning point in our business was technology. So I inherited this, um, wonderful, but legacy system that my father had architected and built. And I remember being four years old and following him around as he showed off the software, like in the early nineties. And I was like, I'm so proud that my dad writes software, you know? And then now it's like, Oh my God, it's like the most archaic clunky thing. Um, and that took me a long time to find a way out of it. So I think I struggled because there's a lot out there on how to start a tech company, but there's very little out there in terms of mentorship on like, if you've inherited a tech company, from mm. the 80s, 90s, that's using technology from like the 70s, 80s, 90s. Like how the F do you get out of that, especially as a small business? But now it's been, it's at the end of actually five years. I didn't never believed it mm. when somebody told me it's going to take five years to get out of that. But a data migration of that scale really is able to give us some rocket fuel because finally we're in a um, infrastructure that is just scalable. Um, it took all of our energy resources for five years, even from a human capital perspective, like my team are like, if you give us one more tech change, we're going to shove you off a cliff. But that's amazing. Cause now as a manager, I'm like, I don't even need to worry about how our tech is going to hold us back. We can just ideate, create new visions, create mm. new products, and just have control over our own destiny. Five years. That is patience. So Yaffa, we talked a little bit about relationships, and I want to talk about uh, something connected to that, but that's really you as an entrepreneur and, you know, kind of creating that brand for what you are known for and being the person that people go to around this. Some people call this, you know, thought leadership. Others will th- uh, shit will call it being generous with information and kind of being available for it. I know that that's something that you've worked um, worked on and been very thoughtful about how you position yourself and how you make yourself available. Can you tell us what your philosophy around this is? Sure. So in our industry, if you're trying to introduce somebody to you that you're somebody that can get them a benefit plan, it sometimes can feel the way it feels when you're talking to a real estate agent or a mortgage broker, or really like an insurance sales rep. Um, I mean, if you've ever had a friend in your circle that's a real estate agent, you might have seen there's a lot of different ways you can introduce yourself. You can just kind of float it out there like, hey, guys, I have a new career. It's in real estate. Change your LinkedIn and then that's it. Or you have other people that every single time they see you, they're like, oh, and by the way, remember to use me to list your house. So on the spectrum, I think I'm like the other extreme of that in terms of I almost do a really bad job promoting what our company does, which is so incredible. 
But um, I do do a good job of gifting as much technical information as possible. So I get really comfortable reading contracts and reading the fine print in my industry, knowing insurance contracts inside and out. Um, so that if a situation comes up and in my peer group or on LinkedIn or sometimes in a Slack channel, if I'm a part of, if there are potential customers in there or partners, anytime somebody's asking a question or on Quora, like I'm on it and I'm giving my technical knowledge and I'm giving as much as possible. I find in my industry, a lot of people used to feel like you're not supposed to give that away for free because you've got to mm-hmm. just bait them a little bit and they'll come to you after But I find it's the opposite. I find if I just give all of the secrets away and the secret sauce and and I tell people, listen, there's no Wizard of Oz. It's just a girl behind a curtain. Like, that's it. I find the sale comes in after the fact. Um, And it's a long time. Like, I'm super, super patient. But at the end of 10 years, I'm now getting one to three leads a day. I have to say, when you talk about that, what it makes me think is something I hear a lot of women say is that they're not really comfortable selling. And I think when they say that, what they are saying is those, you know, push tactics, the very aggressive, the very, you know, uh, pricing competitive strategies or the buy now or forever you lose out and this is the only chance you have, all of those pressure tactics. And the way you are talking about this strikes me as very much opposite of that, much more authentic, much more connected to providing deeper value. And I wonder if that's um, a way that you think women can really thrive in industries, not only B2B, but also, you know, service-based, sales-based industries. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's millions of content creators online that are always looking for content and to collaborate. Um, So I started off just literally when print was still a thing, writing for benefits industry papers and just saying, I know a lot about contracts, like here are three contract rules you need to avoid. Otherwise you're going to get sued. And I would just type up 700 words. I'd send it to like five different outlets and be like, Hey, benefits Canada, you want to write about this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I find that refreshing because I think a lot of the messaging in sales or a lot of the messaging that entrepreneurs hear around, you know, closing the deal or negotiating is very much around, here's the box that you should behave, be behaving like this. And that is the only way to succeed in that. I mean, I think certainly there is a time and place for that, but in B2B sales, the more I've pushed, the more people push away from me. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for this really deep conversation, Yafa. So many goodies, so many goodies. For those who want to continue learning from you and follow you online, where can they do so? Yeah, so uh, beneplan.ca is our website. We're on all the social uh, media outlets. And then also I've got a personal Twitter. It's my first name, last name. So it's Yafa Sakaja. And yeah, thanks so much for having me. Amazing. Thank you so much, Yafa. Thanks. Take care. We're now going to take a quick pause before we hear from our next guest. The go-to for entrepreneurs in the know is the outcome of a collaboration between the Forum and the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Let's take a moment to hear about a generous supporter. The Forum is pleased to have teamed up with the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Did you know that they have an advisory board consisting of Scotiabank executives who share their expertise during mentorship advisory sessions? They cover a variety of subjects for women entrepreneurs. To join the program, go to scotiabankwomeninitiative.com slash join now. Being an entrepreneur is life-changing. 
often deeply impactful and energizing, and it can also be overwhelming, lonely, and challenging. Whether you're thinking about starting your own business now, or you've been at it for years, we are here for you. We offer outcome and impact-focused programs, education designed specifically for entrepreneurs, and a deeply supportive community. Our entrepreneurs say that the highlight of their time with us is not only the tangible results they experience within themselves and their business, but also the incredible sense of community with other women who share similar goals, values, and visions. Visit us at theforum.ca slash discover to join us and learn more about how to be part of the community of education, mentorship, and support. Rachel Drew is an experienced entrepreneur and Juris Doctor candidate at the University of Saskatchewan. She founded her first business, Farside Safety Services, in 2014 as a single parent with two kids under three. Farside is an occupational health and safety management firm serving clients in various sectors, and Rachel is still the sole owner of Farside, but has built a strong team that has allowed her to step away to pursue her next business venture. In 2020, Rachel founded her second business, Cadence Final Document Services. This was done while completing her first year of law school, managing Farside, kids, and a pandemic thrown right in. It's clear Rachel picks the most inopportune times to start a business, though she believes that if we wait for the right time, we could be waiting forever. After Rachel's mom died, she discovered the administrative challenges people are faced with. This is all while grieving the loss of a loved one. Rachel became fixated on this problem and dedicated herself to solving it. This is where Cadence comes in. Cadence is a software solution designed to simplify estate documentation. The software provides personalized step-by-step guidance and utilizes digital form automation to complete over 300 forms and notification letters that are required after a death. The software reduces administration time by 98%, giving back time to grieve and hold space. Rachel, I'm so excited to have you joining me today. Thank you and welcome. Thank you so much for having me here today, Paulina. I'm really looking forward to our chat. So Rachel, from your story and your background, it sounds like you have become a little bit of an expert in resilience. You started and ran businesses at times that were really challenging and hard in your life. What were those moments like and how did you tap into resilience and the ability to see opportunity in those challenging times? Honestly, the whole thing kind of felt like a whirlwind at the time. But I think really what it was is understanding that we don't have control of our outcomes and we never know what's going to happen. And sometimes you just have to step in to the discomfort and take those risks and just go ahead and do what you're going to do because we can just wait forever and never take those opportunities. So for me, it was just a matter of jumping on opportunities as they were presented, no matter what was going on personally in my life at the time. Which is quite incredible because, I mean, from starting a business when you're a single parent with two kids under three, I mean, I have two young children, so I know how exhausting that period of time is, let alone when you're a single parent navigating that. And now starting your second business, Cadence, 
after um, after also a really challenging time and throw in a pandemic on top of that. When you when you look back at your years of running your business and as you're looking forward to your new one now, what are some of the tenants around building that kind of mindset and fortitude or perhaps accessing resources that have really helped you build and grow? Honestly, I think just having such an incredible support network. So even though at times life was in turmoil in a lot of cases for me, I still had such a strong support network from my family and my friends and then the various entrepreneurial groups, including your guys' group with this current venture. So there's so many amazing supports available to people, whether that's through women networks, um, entrepreneurship programs, accelerator programs, which we've and utilizing with Cadence quite a lot. So I think it's just really tapping into those resources that you do have. So entrepreneurship, I think a lot of the time can feel really isolating and lonely. But if we just remember that there's other people who are going through the same things that we are, that often people can experience the same kind of struggles, whether it's personally or professionally, and just accessing those people and those resources because they're all around us. So it's just a matter of asking for help when you need it. So everything I've done, I certainly never did it alone. I wouldn't have been able to do it with all of the supportive resources and people in my life. So honestly, I give so much credit to all of that support that I've had because we can't go it alone. That's for sure. It's true. And I'm so glad you talked about asking for help because that doesn't always feel comfortable or easy. So is that something that kind of comes naturally to you? Have you worked on that? What is your relationship with asking for help and receiving it? Uh, It has definitely been a work in progress. I am, you know, I like to do things independently. I always think of myself as a strong, independent person. But I've also realized that that can make things more difficult than they actually have to be. So Mm. over the years, I think just also being put into positions where I really needed help, you know, when I was on my own with the kids or when I was dealing with struggles and my mom was sick, all the various challenges that I faced, I just realized that I actually couldn't do it alone and I didn't have to do it alone. So I think it was just learning that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to tell people if you're struggling or what you need support with and just ask for that. Because what I learned over the years is if you don't put yourself out there and say what you need, you're likely not going to get it. Mm -hmm. So I think just being empowered to say what you need, speak your mind and ask for help when you need it. But yeah, it didn't didn't come naturally. It has taken time for me to be able to do it. And now I ask for help all the time. (laughs) So it's it works so good. But you know, people want to help. Okay, switching gears a little bit. So I want to talk about your first business, which was in safety services. So, you know, very much in the service-based industry where you're working with a variety of clients in various sectors. Building relationships in that industry is so important. I mean, that's really the keystone of any business and definitely in the service industry, any any kind of business that you have in the service industry. Relationships are really kind of the bread and butter. I'm really curious when you look back at your time at running and growing that business, what worked for you in terms of how you built relationships and anything that you're taking over from that world, perhaps into now the tech world. 
Yeah, definitely. So I completely agree with you. Relationships is fundamentally the most important thing with a service business. And I also think it still is in a tech business. It does definitely carry forward. And I think we can lose that at times. But what I found with the service-based business was just providing the best value that I possibly could to my customers. And it didn't, that doesn't mean being perfect all the time. That doesn't mean, you know, getting over hurdles and making mistakes and adapting and changing. It just means doing the best that you can and always putting your best foot forward to your customer. And so I was really fortunate with the occupational health and safety business. Um, and still today, it's often a referral business. So most of my clientele come from referrals, people who've worked with my group before or um, have some experience working with us in the past. So that's often how we get a large amount of our work. So that customer engagement and client client engagement is really, really important. So it's just an ongoing thing. And even though now I have stepped out of the services of that business, I'm not any longer providing the occupational health services. I have my advisors who do that. I still stay very much engaged with all of the clients, keeping in touch with them, checking in and finding out how things are going and how they're doing, because we're all really just people and we crave relationships and validation. So I think just continuing to engage with your clients is really the most important thing that you can do to build a service-based business. And I love that you offer that because it sounds on one hand so simple, yet the strength and the power of that's remarkable. And I think it's something that women are often very innately good at is, you know, keeping in mind whose daughter is going to what school, how old they are and who has a dog and where they went last on vacation and bringing kind of those details of context into the relationship conversation and really caring. Like to me, it strikes me that it's, it's very much about the caring economy. And we show when we show one another the humanity and the care behind it, that's when those relationships really grow. And same thing goes when we look at technology business. I mean, let's talk about that for a second. You know, you've been growing your business. I know you had a, a successful first raise and you've brought money in to support your business, which again, comes down to relationships. So walk us through what you have felt has really worked for you so far. Yeah, it really is all about those relationships. And I think so much more than just a business relationship, but a personal relationship. It's exactly what you said, you know, people want you to remember what's going on in their life and to bring up these personal things that they're thinking about and dealing with and just building a relationship of trust. That's not just about business, but it's just about personal trust and understanding. Okay, so I want to uh, I want to take us in a bit of a reflecting journey. And as you think about the first business that you grew, and now your business now, I'm curious with your with um, with Farsight Safety Services, what was a really pivotal moment for you? What was something that really transformed the business? What was that moment that felt like everything changed? So the moment I can think of that really changed everything for me at that time was my first hire. And mm -hmm. I think that was just so validating that something that I was doing was working. You know, it was expanding beyond me and service-based businesses can often be somewhat challenging to grow, um, 
sometimes it might just focus on one individual person, but my goal was really not to always have it just be me providing the service. I wanted to grow Mm. and expand the business so that I could provide more support to more companies. And so I could do a whole lot more with the business. So that was in that business, the pivotal moment really was that first hire because it was just so validating that something was working out and we've continued to grow since. Um, Of course, that doesn't come without challenges, but it's just been really nice to know that I can build this team and and the wonderful team that I've had has just been so incredible because they're all just brilliant um, and amazing at what they do so it's been really nice also to just grow with other people too in that business mm. that's really such a great point of validation and and so exciting to be able to get to that stage with a business too okay and then when you think about uh, your business now with cadence what feels like the most important decision you've made so far Oh, that's an interesting one to think about. It seems like all of the decisions are important (laughs) in in different kind of ways. But I'd say really the most important one that I can think of at the moment is the choice to raise capital. So Mm. with my other business, I had bootstrapped that business. It was a different type of business, much, much different than tech. So it wasn't something that I needed to raise capital for. Um, It was just an entirely different business model. So as I started this business just in this past year, I was really evaluating what I needed to do in order to make this work and be successful. And obviously it was really, really important to me to be able to get this product to people people who need it when they're grieving. So it was the decision about whether or not to take on capital right now or later, you know, you're trying to figure out what's the best time. And honestly, taking your guys's money move course really helped me in making that decision because it walked me through all of the various options that people have when raising capital. And it really triggered me to figure out what do I need and when do I need it and why Mm -hmm. do I need it? So I went through that entire evaluation process during that course. And it was actually Actually, not long after that, that I had decided that it was the right time to do it. Um, and so in December, we did end up raising capital. We took on 175000 in investments. Um, and the process was very good, actually. I've heard, you know, mixed reviews about how that process can go for people mm-hmm. because there's so many ways you can do it. There's so many, you know, implications of that and challenges that can come from that and also benefits that can come from that. So um, it was a tough decision, but I feel like we made the right decision. And I was really happy with how that progress went. And now we'll have the ability to scale much quicker than we would have just trying to bootstrap it on our own. Well, I think you bring up such a good point, and that's really that understanding of why you want to raise money. You know, the answer of because everyone's doing it probably isn't the one that will serve you best, but really getting clear on what are your values, what is your vision, what kind of growth path do you want to have, and on what timelines? Because all of those things, as you said, will dictate what kind of capital you go out and get. And you're right, you know, in a service-based business, there's different kind of capital that you access, and the growth trajectory for that often looks really different. I'm curious for you as a founder, how did you shift your mindset? Because it is a bit of a different mindset, you know, when you're in the service-based industry and um, typically that means you're maybe utilizing loans or lines of credit or kind of doing cash flow financing. So growing kind of as the pace of the business goes and to switching to something that is quite different in terms of a financial model. So I'm curious from a founder and mindset perspective, how did that transition and switch go for you? And what was your thought process behind that? 
Honestly, it was a struggle. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of, it actually plays back a little bit into that asking for help because I just want you know, I, I like doing things on my own and feeling like, you know, I can do things on my own. And with my other business, I was able to do that on my own without, mm -hmm. you know, having to take on any extra capital or anything like that. So I did definitely come up against a wall when I was trying to, I still wanted just to be able to kind of do it on my own, but also knew the limitations of that. And then I find in the tech culture, it is definitely a culture of, oh, you got to always be raising, you got to always be raising. And it's kind of a very mm -hmm. strange dynamic that can be easy to get tied into. So I think it was really just grounding into my values, what I wanted to do, what my goals were, and just being very specific and making the decision based on what me and my business partner thought we needed and wanted to do. And really, when we took on investment capital, we were actually also just thinking of the team that came with that. So mm. that capital that we took on, it's not just money. It's also brilliant people who are supportive of our business and want to see us, us succeed. So that played a lot into it too. You know, who we were getting, you know, into bed with, so to speak, who are we going to be partnering with here? And we really see them all as really amazing strategic partners for our business. So that also played into it. So I think it's just really taking your whole scenario into consideration and figuring out what's the most important. I really see the underlying theme that you've talked about, which is who you're bringing to the table, both from support, you know, where you're getting money and who is who is helping you grow as an entrepreneur and as a business that really strikes me as a theme that I'm hearing you share. Yeah, definitely. Honestly, it's all about relationships. I think so much comes down to these relationships that we have and who can support us and who can we support along the way too. So I think that's foundational. That reciprocity feels so true, so true. Thank you so much, Rachel, for taking the time to dive in with us. For those who want to continue following you and learn more about you and your business, where can they find you online? Sure. You can look up Cadence Cares. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can also go to www.cadencecares.ca. Thank you so much, Rachel. Really excited to continue seeing your business grow and follow along. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Yaffa and Rachel. Our mission at the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs is to amplify the voices of Canadian women entrepreneurs across all platforms. Typically, this time would be used as an ad or sponsor spot, but we've decided to dedicate the next 60 seconds to a woman-owned business in Canada to share their vision. Let's have a listen. Hey everyone, I'm Myra, the co-founder of Altex. Altex is creating sustainable, biodegradable, and carbon-neutral textiles engineered from food waste. Fashion is one of the most polluting and unethical industries in the entire world, but more specifically, polyester, something that's found in 60% of the items in our closets right now, is the largest contributor to fashion's carbon footprint. And we're trying to change that with our circular polyester-like material technology. 
Next time we pop on that favorite sweater, let's check the tag and think about how we can make more sustainable and ethical decisions by thrifting our clothes, mending them, washing them on efficient and cool water cycles, and choosing more circular materials like linen, hemp, and soon Altex. If you want to learn more about why the fashion industry needs massive disruption, I encourage you to Google the Uyghur genocide and visit us at www.thealtex.com to see how you can help us at a higher standard for an industry that really touches each one of us. Thank you for spending time with us and listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to leave no woman behind. Explore more about this episode and learn how to get plugged into our community by visiting theforum.ca slash discover and on our socials at theforum.ca. Thank you again to the Scotiabank Women Initiative and remember to visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com slash join now to find out how to join. Huge thanks also to the Women's Enterprise Organizations of Canada for your support. And last, but certainly not least, thank you to our incredible production team, Self-Hired Media. This podcast is also available in French, thanks to our incredible translation team at Hummingbird Translations. See you next time.